Hello, this is Doom to Repeat. This is Alex Cummings from Tropics of Meta and Doom to Repeat. Uh, we are back with another one of our conversations with um, intellectuals, uh, nerds, dorks, uh, washouts, uh, sort of deadbeats, skid row type people. Um, I'm talking, of course, about SACRIF, America's Best Dressed Conference. We are going to talk today with uh, actually uh, Kristen Sylvian, who is a professor of history at St. John's University, about her book, The Mutual Housing Experiment. This is a really interesting book because it answers one of the questions that is bedeviling us right now, which is, you know, what do we do about housing? What do we do about affordable housing in America's cities? Traditionally, there has been the option of public housing, which is out of fashion now. And then there's private housing, which is, you know, um, sort of exponentially, spiralingly unaffordable. Maybe there's subsidized private housing, like Section 8. But really, there doesn't seem to be that many other options for actually creating a model for sustainable, affordable housing in American cities. And what Kristen Sylvian does in this book is to actually reveal a very different past that has been forgotten. So here we are speaking with Dr. Kristen Sylvian at SACRIF. SACRIF conference in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, insert SACRIF joke here. I think you guys are probably tired of hearing them by now. Um, nevertheless, this is a great conference for people who are planning dorks and uh, nerds, geeks. You know, uh, they take all they talk all comers here. Um, we're getting to talk to a lot of authors, uh, historians, planning scholars about their recent uh, work, and uh, we're really excited to be here today. Hi, I'm Kristen Sylvian. I'm a professor at St. John's University, which is located in Queens, New York. And I pub direct the public history program there and also am jointly appointed in the Library and Information Science Division. Wow, yeah, so that's uh, there's a lot to talk about there. And Queens, New York is uh, certainly my favorite place in the world, um, having lived there when I was in grad school. Um, a dream of going back someday, but anyway. where did you live in Queens? Sunnyside. Oh, you lived in Sunnyside in oh. the in Sunnyside Gardens. Oh, um, yeah. Well, uh, right the, next, yeah, yeah. that uh, that in, area. Yeah, cool. yeah. yeah um, it was uh, just stereotypically Irish, like just extravagantly Irish. Like people, guys in bars drinking at eleven I... in the morning, <laughs> listening to you two and the Pogues on the jukebox. Right. It's it's like. Wow. Yes. <laughs> it was a very interesting place. Um, but that's actually a great segue to the topic of my book. Because oh, that's is, right? yes, that's an example, right? That Sunnyside Gardens is an example of one of the early cooperative housing efforts. And um, it was certainly an inspiration to the people that organized the mutual or cooperative housing program that I wrote about. 
Act. So this is in your recent book, uh, The Mutual Housing Experiment, New Deal Communities for the Urban Middle Class, which is uh, part of this great urban life series at Temple University Press, I think? Yes, yes, that's right. So what's mutual housing? Well, uh, mutual housing is, in many respects, the same as cooperative housing. It's just um, the mutual program was publicly funded, and the creator of this program, whose name was Lawrence Westbrook, he believed that um, cooperative housing, there was a lot of negative connotations from it in the 1940s because so many of the co-ops formed in the 20s and 30s, particularly like some of the communist-led ones in the 1930s, went broke. They went bankrupt. And so he thought that using the word mutual gave it, it was just a marketing thing. He's just trying to brand it differently. But basically, I kind of discovered mutual housing um, when I was at Carnegie Mellon on a visit with one of my professors. We visited this place. I mean, I thought it was military base housing because my dad worked in a military base. And I thought, was this army housing? And my dissertation advisor told me, my professor then, um, no, this was government housing built for civilian wool workers during World War II. Oh, built for electrical wow. workers, built right. for steel workers. Right. So they're different than low-income public housing developments where you have to qualify economically. During the war, the federal government built almost a million units of defense housing where there were no income limits. You simply had to work for the military or a defense contract. This was uh, the Lanham Act? That's right. You're quite right. Yes, the Lanham Act of 1940. So as I said, nearly a million units of housing, but two-thirds of them were temporary. So the most important housing was the one-third that was permanent, and most of this was designed by leading architects, including Walter Gropius and Marcel Brewer, for wow. example, Clarence Stein, um, you know, all kinds of leading modernists like Richard Neutra designed one in California. So I visited one of these places, and I, you know, I asked my dissertation, you know, and, and compared to the, uh, this was in the 1980s in Pittsburgh, and many of the neighborhoods and the outlying mill towns were really suffering economically. I mean, the sure, unemployment yeah. in the 1980s, I mean, it was very dramatic. Right. And I visited this place, and I mean, there are kids playing in the yard, and everybody's house was open, and people were going back and forth into other people's units, and guys were repairing cars and, the, you know, helping each other. So to my dissertation, I was like, what's with this place? You know what? And he said, well, these people own this community. This is a housing co-op. It's not a public housing development. This is, this is a, you know, people own this. And I was like, well, how'd that happen? And he said, you know what? You should find out. Wow. And so I did. <laughs> and this was your dissertation? or uh, Yes, and it was the subject of my dissertation back in the 1980s. Wow. Yeah, it's always, we always like to talk to people about, like, how they arrive at that idea, that uh, serendipitous moment or the aha moment where you're like, oh, I'm going to spend the next 10 years writing about <laughs> my this. My life, that's right, exactly. You know? yes. um, or what kind of question you want to answer. Um, I find this, uh, I, there's a, so much to discuss here, but um, to me, like, I, the word co-op I just associate with New York City, like, and so, I mean, it's interesting to hear about other cooperative housing uh, developments in other parts of the country. Uh, how widespread was this? Well, you, well, you're quite right in the sense that overwhelmingly, statistically, cooperatives remain a New York phenomenon. They were in the past, they are today. And so, you know, when I talk about my book in New York City, people, oh yeah, you know, they know co-ops, but other places, people confuse 
condominiums with cooperatives. Right, and so right. for those who are more familiar with the co-op, excuse me, the condominium, you own the fee simple to your dwelling unit. In a condominium, excuse me, in a cooperative development, you own shares in a corporation, that's right, that owns everything. Your unit, the roads, the clubhouse, you know, the swimming pool, whatever kind of amenities you have, you are a part owner. So if there's 250 units, you own a one, you know, a 250th share of the entire community. And then some co-ops, are allow you to sell the share on the market, but that's more of a recent phenomenon and really kind of undermines the nonprofit and more kind of community orientation where the so-called, you know, traditional or full-blown cooperative, you must sell your share back to the cooperative when you leave. I see, right. I was, the, my next question was going to be, how do you leave if you <laughs> yes. have to move? Um, you do get a little <laughs> bit of interest back from the cooperative, but again, a small percentage. I mean, most people go into cooperative housing not to make a killing off of real estate, not for speculative reasons, but to assure themselves of affordable housing and community-oriented housing. So this is um, this was associated with the left earlier on, right? Um, but then you're, you're talking about government-sponsored uh, yes. cooperative housing in the 30s. That's right. Um, how does that evolve? Well, it uh, that's a great question because it actually evolves, as you say. It really was very nested in the left, particularly in the labor movement. I mean, for decades, um, you know, prior to World War II, labor unions had been trying to help working people acquire housing. But as 2008 has shown us, right, home ownership can be a terrible drain on people. You know, not everybody's house appreciates, right? And lots of times, um, you know, your house declines in value, can't pay the mortgage. So the idea was is that um, home ownership isn't necessarily a good thing for working people. We need an alternative, right? You know, renting, we all know how irritating it is to hand the money over to the landlord. But on the other hand, do you want a mortgage on your back if your unemployment is uncertain? Maybe you have a health issue. So having something that's kind of a hybrid, that you have some of the freedom, some of the flexibility of renting, but you have some of the economic security and social security of renting, that's where cooperative housing, you know, that that's where it arose. And so back to your question of how did the government end up in this, um, during World War II, um, the um, the need for labor, the labor for work in war industry um, was really being hampered by the lack of housing. So as you said, the passage of the Lanham Act, some of that money was used to seed cooperatives that would hopefully be models for the post-war period. So the idea was we're going to get up with unions, and these were CIO unions. This is before the AFL and the CIO. This is when they were rivals. Right, right. So these are more, you know, as you say, leftist-orientated unions, the United Automobile Workers, the United Steel Workers, um, the aluminum workers later merged with the steel workers, the um, um, electrical workers out of Dayton. These were examples of the unions that backed this idea of seeding um, cooperatives during the war years, and then we would use those as patterns, models for post-war housing. I find this really fascinating. Um, well, in part because this is a moment where the federal government is also getting 
its first forays into public housing in general in the late 30s. Those kinds of experiments are happening in countries all across the world to deal with these same problems. Um, But this uh, Lanham Act thing in particular is interesting. Um, Do you know um, the historian Ryan Reft? I I just saw... Did you just have a book, a new book out? Uh, no, actually not at, not yet. Um, okay, no, I've gotten confused dis- with someone else. Dissertation yeah. okay, um, no, recently. Me. I've got him confused with someone else. There was a JUH article about this, but he was writing about this uh, wartime military housing, just exactly what you're talking about. Oh, okay, how do and, I not know this? <laughs> well, yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, it's uh, something that I'd never thought about before, because we always think that people in the military live in barracks, and that's just all you think, and you're like, no, there's housing, apartments uh, for families uh, who are war workers or who were in uh, the military service, Um, but what Ryan kind of uh, looked at was how um, the disposition of this housing after the war, where there were these strong, uh, the strong push to get rid of this socialist um, housing and privatize it, sell it to the owners, the tenants, and they were also often somewhat integrated um, housing, and people didn't necessarily like that. So the piece that I understand that piece of it, but this co-op piece of it feels like it's something else. Is that right? Well, um, actually, yes, yes, and no. So you're, you're quite right in that politically, for the Truman administration, the what they called disposition of these nearly one million units of housing was an absolute nightmare because Congress is pressuring the administration to sell it. And written right into the Lanham Act was the requirement that it had to be sold upon the end of the war. So this is right in the legislation. Um, so, but when the Truman administration is trying to, you know, implement the will of Congress and the Lanham Act, of course, this is during the worst housing shortage that the United States has ever American known. History, That's right, right. and yeah. all of the GIs are coming home, and there's no housing for them. War workers are remigrating; there's no housing for them. So, politically, selling all of this housing or tearing down the temporaries right. at a time of national housing emergency—it's just politically untenable. So the um, d- the sale of the war housing became a huge issue, and that's where the unions and others proposed, well, if we sell the housing to the people, we won't displace them, right, that they can all get together right. and buy them. So actually that mutual home ownership plan was the first option for the permanent housing. That was the default. Huh. But as you said, race, class, occupation financing, the opposition of real estate um, lobby, the opposition of home builders. They don't want working people to buy those homes. They want those people thrown out of there. They want them leveled. And they want you to go buy a Levittown home. Or they want you to get on the hook for a big old mortgage. So they fought tooth and nail. And the people who wouldn't, you know, kind of surrender their units, then they labeled them as communists. And of course, as you said, the places that were integrated were even more problematic because of course these things set resident against each other right and so the white residents thought well we would get financing for our co-ops if we got rid of those black people Uh and so it became you know there's not only opposition from the outside from the realtors and from all the kind of pro-growth constituencies but then there's divisions within the community over indebtedness and um, you know how to basically negotiate this sale from the federal government. I mean, remember these places 
sold for just around roughly a million dollars. And so for working people, you know, when you think about what these people did, they on their own, sometimes with the help of their unions, they negotiated with the feds for property that cost more than a million dollars in the 1940s and 50s. Most of these people had never owned a home in their lives. They had rented, you know, some tenement apartment or lived with the in-laws. I mean, as I said, these were, you know, blue-collar working people who sacrificed. I mean, I think about the meetings and the travels to Washington and, you know, going to banks and going to the union and going around house to house because they had to get people to commit to the co-op. So they, they, you know, these are really enormous sort of unsung heroes of American housing, these folks that organized these and withstood these accusations of being communists when they had just fought World War II, either in the industrial front or in the actual battlefront. So uh, how many of these co-ops still uh, have endured? Well, I found that probably, and again, it's because of the way that the federal housing officials kept the records, it's hard to distinguish when they sold uh, one of these public, uh, one of these permanent ones to an investor or to a co-op. They simply registered as a sale. Right. As, as opposed to a conveyance to another public housing authority. Right. But I've been able to piece together that about 50 of them were actually sold to the workers. And today, 32 of them still exist. Wow. And they're all over the country. And perhaps the best known is um, one that's actually within Rosie the Riveter National Park and the World War II Homefront National Park in Richmond, California. So that is a, what we call a scattered site national park that has part of the shipyard there. There's part of the kind of, uh, let's say, business district that was built for the shipyard workers. But that mutual housing, the public housing development, the defense housing development that was built for the shipyard workers is there, and it's still owned by the folks. Wow. And then on the other side of the country, let's say in the Pittsburgh area, that's the largest concentration of them. There's 13 in the Pittsburgh area. And I argue in the book that that can be credited to the CIO. The CIO helped those folks set up those corporations. And in one instance, a, a labor attorney who I... Um, uh, interviewed, uh, no, I misspoke. He was a labor uh, administrator and researcher for the Aluminum Workers Union. They worked with a Jewish labor attorney who helped them, and they had residents who didn't want to pay up for the co-op unless they got rid of the black people. And he told them, I'm not going to help you unless you integrate this place. And he walked out. And so they all sort of sat there, and then before he got to his car, they ran out and said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 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 you know, they went along with it. And But if he hadn't stood up to them, they would have tried to purge their development of the black families that lived there. Wow, what a great story. It is. It's incredible. And, and as, as far as I know, there are two in the country that were integrated from the beginning and became integrated co-ops or mutuals. There's one that's an African-American community. It's called Mount Vernon Homes. It's in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, north of Pittsburgh. To my knowledge, it's the only black defense housing development that was then sold to a mutual. And it still exists today, but sadly, last I knew it was in bankruptcy. But I certainly hope that 
banks like Mellon Bank, which is um, based in Pennsylvania, um, should step forward and help out um, nonprofit corporations like that to maintain affordable housing, particularly with those historical roots of African-American steel workers organizing that place and raising their families there. Wow, that's, that's, that's a fascinating history. And, uh, you know, as they used to say, uh, a man with a mortgage doesn't go on strike. <laughs> that's um, right. It's so, so true. It's so true. It's a very big deal. Yes. And when you know, as I said, you have this affordable housing and you have security there, you know, and people, it was just so wonderful, you know, when we visited these places. And again, you know, a lot of them are kind of um, are surrounded in poverty. You know, people leave their doors open. You know, people tell me, um, I didn't see Mrs. So-and-so's shades go up at 8 o'clock. I knew something was wrong there, you know, and of course she had been taken ill. You know, so people look out for each other. You know, it is a, that's, that's the thing about these mutuals. They work financially to bring working people affordable housing, but it's more than that. They work socially too. They become a kind of surrogate family. So even if, you know, um, you know, you um, don't know your neighbors, you're kind of forced to through the cooperative because you all vote, there's the meetings, and so it provides a way for people to get on the same page with each other. Wow. Um, well, I, I always uh, think of the quote from Sartre that uh, hell is other people, but um, I, I think there are a lot of instructive lessons for us to learn uh, from this uh, history and this experience. So. I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, Professor Sylvian, to talk to us about this. Uh, I think that uh, the listeners and the readers will learn a lot when they check out the book. So oh, thank, thank you, you so much for your interest. Thank you so much for doing okay. this. Okay, it's a great project. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you.